1: our study of the book of Genesis and uh, take on chapter 28 which is a very applicable chapter for the season. So if you have scripture with you please turn to chapter 28 and let's read together. Uh, Recall that from chapter 27 Rebecca told her son Jacob to flee after he successfully uh, received the blessing from his father even though Esau wanted the blessing we talked about that at length, and now we're going to see the continuation of this action in chapter 28. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him, you shall not marry one of the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take his wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he charged him, You shall not marry one of the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took to wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. And your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And by you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth bless themselves. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done that of which I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob arose early in the morning, and he took the stone which he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I, I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou givest me, I will give the tenth to thee. We see in this chapter, Jacob leaving to leaving his parents, leaving everything he known to go up and find a wife. And on the way, he stops and he sleeps in a place, because the sun had set, essentially you don't travel by night. And then he has this, he has this dream of the ladder. And when he wakes up, he, has a, he looks at the place very differently, and makes a vow to the Lord. So let's go through this step by step, and see how this is applicable really to us, more it is in fact to Jacob. So first of all, Verse 1, Isaac blessed Jacob. And so by this act, again, Isaac confirms Jacob's title to the birthright independently of the deception. In other words, Isaac knows now that Jacob was the one who received the blessing by deception, but now he blesses him knowing who he is, confirming that blessing. Confirming the blessing. And that's because, as we said last time, he is realizing the wisdom of his wife. How, in fact, Esau would care nothing for the blessing itself. Esau is after something wholly different. He's after the fruits that he would, of the blessing. And how uh, God works through mysterious ways to help him, Isaac, do God's will, even though he was going to do the opposite. Eff- effectively giving the blessing to the son that, would, that was the best cook. And so Jacob now is recognized to, the, to be the true heir to the Abrahamic covenant which is why he must not marry outside the family. And that's the other cue q- uh, here. In, in um, Isaac's mind, Esau Isaac could not have been the heir to the covenant because he had gone and married outside of that covenant to begin with. So all these elements are now converging to help Isaac understand what had happened. And no doubt, um, Rebekah must have shared some of that with him. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take his wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now notice in verse 2 he says, arise and go. He doesn't say, arise and flee, which is what uh, Rebecca told him. Rebecca told Jacob, arise and flee. But uh, Isaac is saying, arise and go, which leads us to believe that Rebekah did not tell Isaac about the threat on um, Jacob's wife, life from from Esau somehow she must have already knowing her sons and you, you can see the depth of knowledge of this woman she's already she's already known and figured out that Esau's rage will come down once he realizes that he's basically getting it all and then his desire to kill his brother will go away so she doesn't take action very very wise woman very wise woman indeed and um, oftentimes, also, um, uh, this is obviously what, what you see here is a very good example, obviously of Our Lady, but, but also of the Church, also of the Church. So oftentimes, in the Church, you might see certain things are wrong, and you're wondering why is it that the Church doesn't take action? How come they're not doing this and that and the other? And oftentimes, we want the Church, to, the, we want the Church to turn into some sort of a, um, you know, law enforcement agency, but fundamentally the church isn't that the church is this embassy in this world for heaven and as with every embassy you have people in, that come into the embassy who do not belong there who eventually will refuse will be refused citizenship and there are those who come in and do receive citizenship and there are still those who do not even step in and are extended to citizenship but it's all a citizenship into one kingdom, the same kingdom, the kingdom of truth. And since truth cannot be divided, you cannot have in heaven multiple versions of the truth. Therefore, it is impossible to have two people in heaven who think theologically differently. Right? One believing this set of truth, and this other believing that other set of truth. And maybe an intersection, but that what this guy believes isn't completely true. Well, that would not be heaven, would it Now, Because you're not seeing with your eyes truth, which is Jesus Christ. Um, it was interesting. I was, uh, I was attending Mass on Saturday, and there was a baptism. And at the end at the, end, uh, the baptism, we effectively profess the creed. And in the creed, towards the end of the creed, we are called to say Amen to one, the following statement. And I believe to every teaching of the catholic church believe and uphold every teaching of the catholic church and we say amen every teaching not the important teaching not some teaching not the ones i like not the ones that can, that, that that are convenient not the teaching that are not embarrassing every teaching and this is part of baptism And since there's only one baptism, it follows that anyone who's baptized out there is also bound by that same baptismal vow. There's only one baptism. Jesus Christ doesn't have two baptisms, or doesn't have a series of baptisms. You know, like um, uh, you have the uh, platinum, and the gold, and the silver, and there's only one. Do you understand that? I'm hoping you're starting to realize the meaning of family, family, family. You are one, we are here one family. And we are more of a family than your natural family will ever be. Ever. Because your natural family is on earth. And it ends on earth. The supernatural family will go on forever. Some members of your natural family will be in heaven. Some members of your natural family will be in hell. This is reality. These are facts. And so the the real brothers and sisters of yours are the ones who are going to end up in heaven with you, God willing. And we can't take it for granted because this is what Jesus told us multiple times. So, you you see how in this instance, in the case of Rebecca, she doesn't take action against Esau because she knows she's already thought it through, he is her son, and she already knows how he's going to react once they are separated. And so often the church does the same thing. The church tends to be very patient. And one thing I'd like to tell you about Our Lady before I move on, something that is not perhaps very well known of her, unless you have a certain, um, I would say, um, tangible familiarity with her, meaning she's not a statue for her. For you, most oftentimes for Catholics, Mary is a statue, you know, hands clasped, right? Face sort of turned at a 10 degree angle, right? Eyes downcast, and there's this nice little smile. And that's Mary. But nothing could be further from the truth in one sense. I mean, this represents something profound about her, but you also need to realize that Mary is the ultimate chess player. No one can play against her chess and win. Because chess is this game where you're looking... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, maybe 50 steps ahead to know how the, the outcome is going to play. And she has that vision. So if you are uh, consecrated to her, if you have given her your life, she's already laid out the steps for you 30 years ahead from now. And what's happening to you right now will bear fruit 30 years from now. She's already thought it through. She defeated the devil. You got to understand who she is. She is, um, she is absolutely incredible. Right? Pope Pius the Twelfth said that even Our Lady does not understand. Actually, no, nobody, no human, no human being, and no angel can understand, including herself, can understand the glory to which God raised her. We we can't understand it. At the time of her conception, when she was conceived. Mary had more graces than all the graces of all the angels and all, he, all the saints combined. When she was conceived, let alone when she offered her son on the cross. I mean, there's the book called The Glories of Mary. You should read it because uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori is right on. And it's unfortunate people don't read this book enough. The Glories of Mary. Um, and it's, it's not a book that you read uh, like, like a novel right, or a manual. But it's a book where you can meditate on the glories of Mary. By a great saint, and uh, you get to really know her and get to be more familiar with her. And the more you know about Our Lady, the more you know about the church because they're a mirror of each other. Right? And you can't really love Mary if you don't love the church, you can't be devoted to Mary if you're not devoted to the church, you cannot be obedient to Mary if you're not obedient to the church. One goes hand in hand right? because Mary is the mother of Jesus, and the church is the bride of Jesus. Can't love the mother and hate the, the, the bride. Can't love the bride and hate the mother. Because then you're not family. You're not family. So all of that goes together. Take a wife from there. Uh, verse 3. It's, a patri- it's the patriarch's prerogative to decide whom the members of his clan shall marry. That's how it was in the patriarchal time he would tell them who, from where they're going to marry. And that was his prerogative to do so. But in a specific instance, obviously, it is driven by the covenant. It is driven by the covenant. Now, now, Kaisers of Arles, one of the fathers, says the following. Now, when Blessed Isaac directed his son to Mesopotamia, Isaac represented a type of God, the Father, while Jacob signified Christ, the Lord. Disregarding the woman of the region in which he lived, Blessed Isaac sent his son into a distant country to take a wife, because God the Father would reject the synagogue of Jews and send his only begotten son to form a church out of the Gentiles. So that's obviously spiritual reading of the text, where Kaisers of Arles sees in Isaac a type of the father, and in Jacob a type of a son, and he has to go to a distant land, meaning outside of where he lived in order to take a wife. And the notion here, therefore, is that the church wasn't just uh, created for the Jews, but it was also created for the Gentiles. Verse 5, Rebecca. notice in, in verse 5, the verse 5 says, Rebecca, Jacob's and Esau's mother, the order now has been switched. Very subtle, but you need to pick up on those. Right? It used to be Esau and Jacob, now the order is switched. Jacob and Esau. Why? Because the covenantal order your order, your birthright in the church, in, in the kingdom of God is far more important than your natural birthright. So even though in the natural order Esau was the firstborn, in a supernatural order Jacob is the firstborn. Right? And it's still true of us today. Look for instance at somebody like St. Therese of little child Jesus. She died, she was 25 years old. Far younger than many many uh, men and women who became her students, her followers. That's the wisdom of God. St. John Chrysostom says the following, Do you see, dearly beloved, how much perspicacity this loving mother showed in rescuing Jacob from danger by supplying a plausible excuse for his journey, neither highlighting Esau's wickedness nor revealing the reason to the father, but giving appropriate advice to her son so that he might be persuaded through fear to accept what was said by her and propose a convincing plan to his father? Hence the good man went along with what she said and sent Jacob on his way after plying with blessings. That's St. John Chrysostom. Uh, Again, reflecting the idea I told you earlier about about Rebecca, who is a type of the church and a type of Our Lady. And you can see the power of intercession that Our Lady has with Our Lord. To where she can go to Him and whatever she asks of Him, He will not refuse her. He never refuses her anything she asks. And all the saints, no saints apart from St. Joseph can go directly to Jesus. They don't go directly to Jesus. All the saints go to Our Lady. And she presents their offering to Jesus. Because they know that whatever she presents to him from her hands will always be more beautiful, more convincing, more powerful than anything they could do on their own. The only one who could do it is St. Joseph because Jesus was obedient To St. Joseph and to Our Lady. He was obedient to them. As St. Luke tells us. But even St. Joseph. According to what the saints tell us. Would go through Our Lady. Because it pleases him. It pleases him. And I'll tell you something. You want to please Our Lady. You're a devotee of her. You love Mary. One of the better ways to please her. Is to show devotion to St. Joseph. Nothing pleases her more. According to St. Teresa of Avila. Than when we show devotion to her. Uh, to her spouse, to St. Joseph. And St. Teresa of Avila went, went on and founded nine convents, and every single one of them was dedicated to St. Joseph, without exception. So uh, the, um, you, have, um, you have a prayer intention, you have something on your heart that you, you want to ask for. A wonderful way to do it is to say a novena to St. Joseph. Uh, you can Google 30-day novena to St. Joseph, and there's a beautiful one that will pop up. Pick it up, and you can do it any time of the of the year, and just do that thirty day novena to Saint Joseph, and really uh, develop a true devotion and love to this great saint, who is the universal patron of the Church, of the entire Church. It is Saint Joseph. Verse six through eight. Esau now realizes that his marriage outside the kinship group and his alliances with the native women. Contributed to his loss of the blessing, he's now putting two and two. So what does he do? He compounds the problem. He goes and gets another wife, thinking, "I'm going to fix this time. I got these two, but that's okay. I'm going to add one more." Witless thinking. Here is somebody who acts rashly, without much thought, without wisdom. Why he does not consult his mother? He doesn't go to her and says, uh, "Mom, what do you think I should do?" No, he knows better he's one of those teenagers who know better. Even though he's a man, he's probably 40 years old by now, he's probably 13 as far as maturity goes. When you want to do something like this, when there's a momentous event in your life, St. Augustine tells us that there is a very good way of approaching this. It's a four-step process. Four-step process. First, you pray. You do nothing. You pray. That's the first thing you do. Second, you consult people who are knowledgeable in that domain. Let's say you want to buy a house. You don't sit by the wayside doing nothing and you don't rashly go buy a house. You pray. Then you talk to people who either bought homes or have a good understanding of the market because they've been in it for some time. And I'm not talking necessarily about Catholic. I'm talking people who understand the real estate market. And I'm not talking about necessarily an agent who may have interest in it. You want people to give you objective assessment having your interest in their heart. They have nothing to gain from it. So you consult one, two, three, to get three different opinions. And if they're converging, and they're converging what is in your heart, then you commit to it. You put the plan together, and you do it. And the fourth thing that St. Augustine tells us, once you've done it, you don't go back on it. You don't ask questions, you don't worry about it, You don't. Th- that's it. Now you just... Forge ahead. Very good plan. It's applicable in all stages of lives. You can do it everywhere. So for instance, if you are dating somebody, and every friend of yours look at you and say, are you on crack? You might want to get a clue. If you're dating somebody, and he or she doesn't believe in God, or no matter how much you talk to him or her about God, they ignore you on that topic you'd be foolish to continue. You're getting yourself trouble. That's all you're going to get. If you're dating somebody who's not interested in kids, let them go. So, whether it's dating, whether it's finding a job, whether it's a career, whether it's studies. You know how many students I know who go to university of having no clue what they want to do? And they squander the first two years kind of flip-flopping between this program and that program, like a billiard ball hitting all kind of corners. As if sort of hoping for the heavens to open and some, some angel to show up and tell them, this is what you're going to do. When there is actually a very simple method that they could apply when they're about 16 year old to know what they're going to do. It's, it's, it's pathetic. We live in an age of great indecision because there are so many choices. If you apply that method, you apply it really well, it'll get you ahead quickly and with fewer pain with a lot less pain than the usual sort of ad hoc, random type thing. Let me bang on walls and see which one stands. Verse 8, Ishmael. Now, he. he the scripture tells us he went to Mary, daughter of Ishmael. By now, the man Ishmael was already dead. But you notice how the whole tribe is described by his name. The eponym of the tribe is Ishmael. That's why he says, and then the name of the, the, the daughter is Mahalath. And she's not mentioned among... Esau's wives, who are listed in chapter 36 of Genesis, verses 2 and 3, there it is Basemat, who is said to be the daughter of Ishmael and the sister of Nebaioth. And traditional Jewish exegesis assumed that the two names belong to the same person. So she's called here Mahalath, but in 36, Basemat, same name, same per- I mean, different name, same person. And Nebaioth is essentially... The the son of um, the the prominent son of Ishmael, and he gave his sister away in marriage because their father was dead. It is possible that Nebaioth can be identified with Nabaikai of Assyrian sources and possibly the ancestors of the Nabataeans. Um, It is possible, although not completely established. Now we go back to Jacob, verses 10 through 22. Think about Jacob. When he left, there wasn't a caravan. It wasn't as Abraham did with Isaac. Abraham kept his son comfy with him and sent his servant with a caravan to find him a wife. And a servant, his head servant on the way, was comfortable. Now, it wasn't a first-class flight, but by um, by the time's standards, it wasn't bad at all. He had a caravan, he was protected, he had food, he had everything he needed. Jacob is gone by himself. Just took off. So now he's alone, and he has nothing. Typically, this happens when you are a refugee. When you're running away. And you notice how often God does this to us. He has to pull us away from the things that we are really attached to, so that we can meet Him. He has to make space in our heart for Him first. So we can meet him. He has to empty what we have accumulated in order to meet us. You realize these days that for most of the youth, there's no time for God. I mean, they're texting continuously, right? Between the cell phone and the texting, and the internet, and the email, and the chat, and this and that. there's no time for God. God is not going to text back. You're not going to text back and says, "Hey, this is God." It's not going to happen. But he's waiting for you. So he gets to this place. He came upon a certain place. So it's a place. Now the interesting thing in Hebrew though is that makom, which is what would stand for a place, close to Maqam in Arabic, there's a lot of Arabic words whose roots are also uh, Hebraic or possibly the other way around. It's really hard to tell what the origin of a word is. Is it this or is it that? It's like most of the food of the Middle East. You know, who came up with falafel in the first beginning? I mean, I don't know. Right. So, But be it as it may, the interesting thing about it is that it has a connotation of a sacred site. So even though it says the place, there is already a connotation, this place was sacred. To Jacob, however, it's just like the other place, it's just it's a place. And so he treats it with indifference. One thing I need to tell you, remember I told you Genesis was written while the Hebrews were in exile in Babylon. So as the text was penned down, after 587 B.C., long after these events took place, there is a context in which the Hebrews are living, which is pagan context. Now, superficially, what happens here resembles something called an incubation. And an incubation, and that's very customary in an ancient world, especially near Eastern civilization, is to have a seer who would go and sleep in the sacred precincts of a temple and would then entreat the god to reveal its will to him. And there were ceremonies around this. But the interesting thing here is that even though the overall pattern resembles that, in this specific instance, Jacob is not in a sacred temple. At least he doesn't know it is. It's just a place. Secondarily, he doesn't do anything. He's not trying to induce God to talk to him. He doesn't go there sit down, set up, set up his you know, laptop with Wi-Fi and say, all right, want to connect to heaven. God, please talk to me. He doesn't do any of this. He just gets down and sleeps. And it's God who takes on the initiative. And that is the fundamental difference. If ever somebody asks you, what's the difference between magic and religion? That's the fundamental difference. In magic, the priest induces the deity and wants to control the deity to do his will. In the case of religion, the priest has no power over the deity. Can only intercede, but really has no power. All the power is with, is with God. Very big difference between the two attitudes. Even though in the behavior, you may see things are similar, but the intent and the understanding of where the power resides is very different. Now, you can imagine the fathers have written quite a bit about that. So let me read to you four quotations I taken from the fathers. And then I'll add a little bit more. Um in terms of what, uh, what we can, un- in order to, you know, to better understand what this, is, what this is all about. First of all, the word used in Hebrew for ladder is sulam. Pretty much the same word used in many um, Arabic dialects, sulam. Now, it, that word can either mean stairway or can mean ladder. And that's why, for instance, I've heard of quite a few people talk to me about the song called The Stairway to Heaven. And there's even one who tried, me, tried to make me listen to it. And 30 seconds in it, I was about just to you know, tear the whole thing apart. I just couldn't put up with the noise that this thing was making. But it, the reason why it has such a powerful appeal, I believe, is because there is a precedent to it in the subconscious of many people. And that's what's the precedent. It's right here, that ladder or stairway to heaven. That opens up. But remember also in the Mesopotamian civilization, when they build those pyramids, their pyramids were built with stairs. And so it is with the Aztecs as well. Pyramids, Pyramids with stairs. Why? Because each set of stairs leads you to a gate. And that gate opens up on other stairs and so on and so forth until you reach the last stairs. And the top gate is what? The gate of heaven. There's this notion, therefore, that we can ascend... There's this ascension, this movement up to heaven. And here, God uses this to represent this reality. The imagery in the dream, in Jacob's dream, are corresponding to our psychological need. God speaks our language. It's not that there is actually a ladder where the angels have nothing else to do than to go up and down as if it's an elevator. This is an imagery that God is using because... It fits our psychological need. Always keep that in mind. God, the Scripture is not a book about God's perfect intention or God in His triune mystery. Scripture is a love letter from God to us, using our language. Right? using our language. Think of um, you know, think of a first grade book with a big image and two words. Right? you're reading to a three-year-old. Uh, there is this book about this, what is it, Piggly something? Those who have kids would know what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a pink pig. Well, most pigs are pink, I suppose, but this one's really pink. And now, Wibbly Pig, Wibbly Pig. How many of you have read Wibbly Pig? Those of you will have kids when they understand what I'm talking about, Wibbly Pig, remember that. It's about a little pig and what he does. Every page is a beautiful picture of that pig and a couple of words. Right? And that's what you're reading the kid. And why are you doing this? Behind that, there's a whole psychology to sort of teach the three-year-old already about things like lensiness and, and putting things in place and this and that and the other. But you can't sit down and explain to the kids you know, virtues and vices and discipline and all the things that the kid can't understand. So you package them with a few words in a language that the kid can understand. And most of the time, the kid isn't paying attention because they see something in the picture. And they just take off, right? They're not even paying attention to what you're saying. Think of scripture like that. It's written to try to explain heavenly realities to us in our language. And that dream is a particular, particularly good example of this. All right, so let's see what the fathers say about this. Let's first take um, St. Jerome. Consider our ascetic... Jacob. So he sees him as an ascetic. Why? Because he left everything behind. He went to the desert. He had nothing. So you see a little bit of the monastic outlook that you have to go in the desert. You have to go on a retreat. You have to get out of your own world if you want to meet God. Consider our ascetic Jacob. He was running away from a very cruel man, Esau. He was fleeing his brother and he he found help in stone. Remember when he said he there's a stone, he put it under his head. That stone is Christ. That stone is the support of all who choose to suffer persecution. But to the unbelieving Jew, it is a stone of stumbling and a rock of scandal. Jacob saw there a ladder set up on the ground with its stop reaching to heaven. And in heaven, the Lord leaning upon it. And he saw angels ascending and ascending. Note, he saw angels ascending. And St. Jerome explains he saw Paul ascending. He saw angels descending. And that is Judas, the betrayer, because he was falling headlong. He saw angels ascending, holy men going from earth to heaven. He saw angels descending, the devil and his whole army cast down from heaven. It is very difficult indeed to ascend from earth into heaven. We fall more easily than we rise. We fall easily. It requires great labor, a great deal of sweat to climb upwards. If I am on the lowest step, how many more are there before I reach heaven? If I am on the second, the third, the fourth, the tenth, what benefit to me unless I reach the top? Grant with me that this ladder has 15 rungs. I climb as high as the 14th, but unless I reach and hold the 15th, what profit to me to have mounted the 14th? If I should arrive at the 15th, and then fall, the higher my ascent, the greater my fall. There was a homily, That's part of a homily on Psalm 41. And in the homily on Psalm 46, he adds the following. Would you know that the stone at Jacob's head was Christ, the cornerstone? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which is the stone that is called Ebenezer in the book of Samuel. That stone is Christ. The name Ebenezer, more, moreover, means the stone of help. Jacob woke from his sleep, Scripture says, and what did he say? This is the house of God. What did he do? He poured oil over the stone. Unless we penetrate the spiritual mystery of Holy Scripture, what reason is there that he should anoint the stone? And focus on what St. Jerome just said. Unless we penetrate the deep mysteries of Scripture, what reason is there for him to anoint the stone? So, apart from the church, and apart from Christ, and apart, apart from a new covenant... If you look at the interpretation of the stone being anointed with oil, and I'll tell you what it means literally, it is limited in its purpose. It doesn't have the depth of understanding, once we layer on top of it, the church. I'll show you that in a minute. Now, Kaisers of Arles says, We do not read of blessed Jacob that he departed with horses or asses or camels, but we read only that he carried his staff in his hand. Thus indeed, when entreating the Lord, he said, Lord, I am not worthy of all your kindness. With only my staff I crossed this Jordan. Behold now, I have grown into two camps. Jacob displayed his staff to take a while, but Christ bore the wood of the cross to redeem the church. In his sleep, Jacob put a stone under his head and saw a ladder extending to heaven, while the Lord leaned upon the ladder. Consider, brothers, how many mysteries there are in this place. Jacob represented a type of the Lord our Saviour, The stone that he put under his head, no less prefigured Christ the Lord. Listen to the apostle telling why the stone at the head signifies Christ. The head of man is Christ. Finally, notice that Blessed Jacob anointed the stone. Pay attention to the anointing and you'll recognize Christ. Christ is explained from an anointing, that is, from the grace of anointing. So you can see Kaisers of Arles seeing in the stone Christ, as St. Jerome did. Seeing in Jacob a type of Christ, and the importance put on the anointing, I will get to that anointing in a, as I said in a minute. I want to read to you one more, one more um, quotation from um, Aphrahat. He's an Eastern father. Our father Jacob too prayed at Bethel and saw the gate of heaven open with a ladder going up on high. This is a symbol of our Savior, and Jacob saw the gate of heaven is Christ in accordance with what he said. I am the gate of life. Everyone who enters by me shall live forever. David too said, This is the gate of the Lord by which the righteous enter. Again, the ladder that Jacob saw is a symbol of our Savior. In that, by means of Him, the just ascend from the lower to the upper realm. The ladder is also a symbol of our Savior's cross, which was raised up like a ladder with the Lord standing upon it. This is another representation of the cross, the ladder of Jacob. You do not go to heaven apart from the cross. And the gate is Jesus. I am the gate. You can see the superimposition in the spiritual senses, right? When you think about the, the sense according to Christ, right? the sense of uh, analogy in which we find Christ in Scripture, So in the Old Testament, he was already foretold. His suffering was already foretold. And a division to the right and to the left already foretold with those ascending and those descending all through the cross. The stone, the image of the stone is used repeatedly by Jesus. And that same stone, if you recall, in Exodus, the stone that Moses hit with his staff and water came forth out of it, St. Paul later will say of that stone that it was Christ. And that stone followed them. The notion of the man being the head, I mean, Christ being the head of the man, comes from the fact that Jacob, not comes, but it could be that St. Paul was inspired to see in this, in this image of Jacob having the stone beneath his head, holding his head, as an image that inspired him to think of Christ being the head of the man. So here is another... um, Another quotation from St. Augustine. But what did he see that time on the ladder? Angels ascending and descending. So also is the church, brothers. The angels of God, good preachers, preaching Christ, that is, they ascend and descend upon the Son of Man. Who do they ascend and how do they descend? Sorry. How do they ascend and how do they descend? From one we have an example. Here the Apostle Paul. What we find in him, let us believe also about the rest of the preachers of truth. See, Paul ascending, I know a man in Christ, who fourteen years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up to the third heaven, and heard honorable words, which is not granted to man to speak, you heard him ascending, hear him descending, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but only as carnal, as to little ones in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, look, he who had ascended, descended, seek where he had ascended. Up to the third heaven, seek where he had descended. I became a little one, he says, in your midst. Look how St. Augustine looks at this now as the means by which those who meditate on the Word of God can ascend through Christ, not on their own powers, but through Christ to heaven, seeking the truth, and then they descend, bringing that truth back and sharing it with others. And it doesn't mean that they do it with words. Those who live, those who live Scripture in their lives do that. They ascend to seek the high truth, and they live it. They live it. And so, for instance, Mother Teresa is a very powerful preacher, even though she preached very little. Why? Because of the way she lived. Her life was a far more powerful preaching about the gospel, about the scriptures, than any preacher can do with words. Saint uh, Padre Pio. Every saint in his life, not necessarily in the words, is doing what St. Augustine described as, which actually St. Augustine did as well. Now, it is really interesting, in another quotation by Kaisers of Arles, he actually quotes our Lord, because Jesus says the following, and if you remember that, he says it, in the Gospel of St. John, no one has ascended into heaven except him who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. That is the backdrop for the words of Jesus when he talks about ascending and descending. It is that ladder. right? And I will explain when you go back and read the passage in its context why the Jews wanted to stone him. They completely understood what he was saying about himself, that I am God. Right? Because they had that image... In the backdrop. And then he continues. He says the following. Moreover, when the blessed apostle Paul was persecuting the church, Christ exclaimed from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He did not say, why do you persecute my servants? Nor did he say, why do you persecute my members? But he said, why do you persecute me? Now the tongue cries out if the foot is stepped on. You stepped on me, even though the tongue cannot be stepped on at all. Though the harmony of charity... Through the harmony of charity, the head cries out for all the members. Therefore, Jacob was sleeping and saw the Lord leaning on the top of the ladder. What does it mean to lean on the ladder except to hang on the cross? Consider, brothers, that while hanging upon the wood of the cross, he prayed for the Jews, and you will realize who shouted from heaven while leaning on the ladder of Jacob. But why did this happen on the road before Jacob obtained a wife? Why was the vision obtained before Jacob received the wife? Because our Lord, the True Jacob, first leaned on the ladder—that is, the cross—and afterward formed a church of Himself. At the time he gave, at the time he gave it, the wages of his blood, intending to give it later the dowry of his kingdom. Very powerful words. And again, about the church, be the the ladder being the church, Saint Beatty, at this time. There are so many fathers who have commented on this passage, I cannot obviously quote them all, but I've quoted those who I think inspire us to really meditate on the words of Scripture in light of the church. Now when Jacob, wishing to rest in a certain place, put a stone under his head, he saw in his sleep a ladder standing up on the earth, with its top touching heaven. He saw also angels of God ascending and descending on it, and the Lord resting on the ladder, saying to him, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And rising in the morning and rendering praise to the Lord with due trepidation, he took the stone and set it up as a mark, pouring oil on it. The Lord made mention of this place and most clearly bore witness uh, in a figurative way concerning himself and his faithful ones. The latter, which he saw, is the church, which was its birth from the earth, but is the way of life in heaven. And by it angels ascend and descend, when evangelists announced at one time to perfect hearers the preeminent hidden mysteries of Christ's divinity, and at another time announce to those still untaught the weaknesses of His humanity, they ascend when in their teaching they pass to heavenly things to be contemplated by the mind, and they descend when they educate their listeners as to how they ought to live on earth. Again, the ladder being the only way you can ascend and descend. Ascend to understand, descend to teach. And notice there is one ladder. There were no 33,000 ladders. In that image, Jesus, God, could have shown him 12 ladders. Or 24. Or 10. Or 3. One. One church. One cross. One sacrifice. One mother. One God. One. Verse 13, I am the Lord. El Shaddai is being used here. I am the strong one. Holy one. Holy, Mighty One. I'm the Strong One. That Mighty One, Al-Shaddai, I'm the Strong One. That's the title of the Lord. The God of Abraham, your father. And the wording of the divine promises shows clear dependency on the promises made to Abraham. You saw that the promises made to Abraham is now being passed on from generation to generation. And that's how the covenant moves from one generation unto another, from blessing to blessing. All of us here are not here just because of our own faith. I would say most of us are here because of our ancestors, of the ones who went before us in faith, and who have interceded for us and continue to intercede for us even today. The communion of the saints is one of the most encouraging, one of the most comforting gifts of God to us. The communion of the saints we are not standing alone. In one of the vision there is a servant of Isaiah. Isaiah is surrounded by armies, and there's the servant standing next to him and he's shaking. He's really afraid. And Isaiah is sitting there like flint and nothing is moving him. And he notices how the servant is afraid, and then he says to the Lord, Show him, O Lord. And the Lord grants the servant a vision. And now he sees the host of heaven. Chariots upon chariots, myriads upon myriads of angels surrounding them. And so it is with us and with all the saints who in heaven intercede for us. And all the souls in purgatory, that's who we are. We need to transcend the purely physical view and really meditate on those truths ascending up so that our heart is imbued by them, especially at Christmas especially at Christmas. The joy of Christmas must not be taken away from you by any worries. Right now, the the devil will pile it up on you. Right now, what he wants to do is steal away the joy of Christmas from you. Whether because of monetary worries, whether because of health issues, whether because of concerns, you'll see things piling up. Focus on Focus on this ladder. Focus on Jesus. Focus on God. And do not let anyone take away this abiding hope and joy in your heart in order to really celebrate this wonderful season that is coming up. Now, when he wakes up, he realizes what's going on. And he says, surely the Lord is present in this place. He realizes that the Lord is present. And... Um, this is very interesting because neither Isaac, no, no, neither Abraham nor Isaac exhibit any surprise when they encounter God. Only Jacob does. Only Jacob does. You notice though that's really interesting is that God appeared to Abraham. God appeared to Abraham. Here, God is more remote. It's a dream that Jacob receives. It's a dream. And yet he says, surely the Lord is present here. He wakes up and realizes that God is present, and he's shaken, he's afraid. That is the sense of true piety. So piety is one of the virtues of justice. Piety is the virtue of justice that compels us to give to God what is to God. So when we say of a man that he is a, or a woman that, that they're pious, we mean that they tend to give back to God what is to God. Therefore, they do their, their uh, uh, religious duty, but with a sense of giving back to God what is to God. And you can see in Jacob that sense of piety. He realizes this. He also realizes the distance. Ironic, huh, this ladder. Comes very clear to him, distance between him and God. He humbles himself, he notices, and he's afraid. Why? Because God is present. And he says, I did not know it. I did not know it. And had he known it, he would not have done what he did. He would not have gone and slept there. In the moral reading, obviously, this is a reading that is really damning, in a sense, to so many Catholics who come to Mass. Because when they come to Mass, when they come into the church, they don't know that God is present. They are asleep. They treat the place as though it is profane. Profanum is the Latin word, you've heard me say this before, to mean outside of the temple. Profanum, outside of the temple. So to treat something as profane is to assume that it's not consecrated for God's use. So a very striking example would be if somebody were to take a chalice and go drink wine with it outside. Now there is nothing wrong with good wine. Nice to have a glass of good wine with dinner. But when you take a chalice that has been consecrated to God and use it, for, a, for and, and make use of it. In a um, place that has not been consecrated to God, during a service that is not consecrated to God, you have profaned it. You understand? So when you step into the church, when you step into the church, and you turn around and greet somebody, just greet him. Say, hi, how are you? You have profaned the place. Do You understand what I'm saying to you? You just profaned the place. Hi, how are you, is not sacred word. It can be done outside. The only thing that has to happen here is either silence or prayer. Hopefully both. And then the liturgy. And that's it. You sit down and then you cross your legs. You've profaned the place. You're using an attitude, a social attitude of equality that has no place here. Could you ever imagine Moses sitting in front of the burning bush... Crossing his legs? K- k- tell me, would you imagine Moses doing this? Or Abraham, when God appears to him, just sit down and crosses his legs? Well, if, if, if you can't imagine them doing it, when in fact they had only a symbol, how could we do it when we have the presence in the tabernacle? How could we? You know, most of the time at a church, it's a zoo when the Mass ends. I kneel to try and pray. I just can't pray. There's no way. The din, the noise that people make is unbearable. There's no notion of God's presence. None. We came in. We had a good show. Father didn't have a long sermon. It was actually pretty good. And the show has ended. Surely the Lord was present here and I did not know it. So likewise with our clothing. Right, The way we get dressed when we come here. I'm not going to go on it. Just re- re- think about this. Think about yourself in front of the burning bush. Before you come to Mass on Sunday, imagine going to the burning bush or to this place where there is this ladder. And look at yourself in the mirror and just ask yourself a very basic question. Is that appropriate? If Moses was looking at me, what would he do? Just ask yourself the simple question. How awesome is this place. And that was just the place where he had a dream. What would Jacob say. If he were to step into this church. What would he say. And what did he call it. The house of God. The gate of heaven. If there is not a real. Burning love in your heart for the church. As the house of God. The gate of heaven. If you. Do not love the church with jealousy. Meaning you get offended when people profane the church. Ask the Lord to give you this grace to share, to share in his suffering. Because remember, one of the suffering of Jesus, according to the of the um, devotion that we received from Sister Faustina on the of Divine Mercy, as the lukewarm souls who caused so much pain to Jesus. Who is he talking about? He's talking about good Catholics who up at the church, got no clue what they're doing, sitting in the pews, chewing a gum with flip-flops, or wrongly dressed, dressed in ways that would shame the angels. And they just could not care. That's what he's talking about. Thank you for your comment. So the comment is that uh, uh, it also depends on the priest for his ability to lead the people. Yes, we have to pray for the priests so they can really focus on what's really important—that is the mass, right? Not the bingo on Sunday, and not anything else. The mass, and teach the people, the, their people, how to celebrate the liturgy, and really focus on it, right? I agree with you. However, comma, remember what I said earlier—that in our baptism, I. Believe and uphold everything the Catholic Church teaches. So, the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that in the Old Covenant, only the priest could enter the sacred precinct, the lady could not. Now, that's changed. So, we participate in the royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are also called to teach ourselves. That's the difference. And then now we have the Holy Spirit to inspire us and to lead us in all that is good. I am not taking away anything from what you said. You understand? But I'm just adding to it, which is that we can't simply say it's the priest's problem. Oftentimes, it's also our problem, right? Because we don't really take this notion away. Maybe we should open up encyclicals and read them, right? How many youth? Club, you know, that center around encyclicals. You know of many youth club who have, you know, the Pope Pius XII fan youth club? They don't even know who Pope Pius XII is. I mean, they no concept of the great men and women in a church. So, it's both. The priest has to do what he has to do to teach us, but it's not enough. We have also to pick up the load and carry it. Ah, Is it a sin if people are ignorant of the rules? I get this question quite often because people don't understand the concept of a sin. A sin is an offense made against God. So, imagine, if you will, that you had a house and you had a beautiful um, stained glass. And uh, outside you have a nice um, garden and there are some bushes that hide the street. And on that street there's a little kid, 10-year-old, who's playing baseball with a friend. And he kicks that ball, and it breaks your window. He doesn't know. Was there an offense that was committed? Objectively, yes. As to the object, the, 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 the glass is broken. Subjectively, he doesn't know. So his offense is lessened. Yes? So, there's always a difference between something being a serious matter in of itself... And then the offense committed by somebody who is not aware of what he's doing. Right? So yes, it is. It's very offensive to our Lord. He died for us. He's present right now. And we come in and treat this place as if it's a theater. Imagine you're sitting there. You're sitting there. And people come because they love you. And they sit here and they completely ignore you. Would you be offended? It's your birthday, let's say. Right? and you are the one who got all these guys out of jail, and you paid the ransom, and you invited them over, not only then, you made them heirs with you, and now they're each receiving a million bucks, and they're sitting there, and they're ignoring you. How would you feel? Okay. <laughs> Look at him on the cross. I've got to tell you, there are churches where I just can't go to, because it has become, for me, a near occasion of sin. I get so riled up. It's my problem. You have to pray for me. Right? Um, the more you know about this, the more upset you are. And it is very upsetting. Very upsetting. This is the most important thing we can do in our life. Jacob, Isaac, Abraham would have loved, would have sold everything they had to just go to one mass. Moses, Isaiah, I, Jesus himself said it. Prophet and kings long to see what you see and didn't get to see it. And then we come here with flip-flops and chewing gum. Alright. That's why, for this Christmas, really focus on Christmas. Focus on Christmas. Focus on Jesus. So the mystery of Christ, St. Ephraim the Syrian tells us, As for the oil that Jacob poured upon the pillar, he either had it with him or he had bought it out of the village. In the oil that he poured upon the stone, he was depicting the mystery of Christ who was hidden inside it. In other words, Saint is telling us that a reason why Jacob was doing what he's doing, the real reason, according to the Holy Spirit, is that Jesus one day will be anointed, anointed king, and he is the stone. Another thing I'll tell you, which the fathers haven't said, but I think it's very striking. He takes a stone and he anoints it, and then he says, This is the house of God, this is the gates of heaven. Imagine you are Peter. And Jesus says, You are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Imagine the impact, the force of this for pious um, uh, Galileans who knew their scripture. There is a mystery of the Petrine office also sitting here for us. This is so rich. And so... Ephrahat also tells us that Jacob acted symbolically. Now, Jacob called the place Bethel. What is Bethel? Beit El, house of God. That's it. And Jacob raised up there a pillar of stone as testimony, and he poured all over it. Our father Jacob did this too in symbol, anticipating that stones would receive anointing for the peoples who had believed in Christ are the stones that are anointed. Just as John says of them, from these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. This is Jesus again talking to the Pharisees, and he tells them, you think you're the children of uh, of Abraham? God is able from these stones to raise up children. And so Ephraim, the Syrian saint, Ephraim sees that in this stone isn't only the symbol of Christ, but also each one of us, who's taken, hewn, prepared, and anointed. And when are we anointed? Not baptism, confirmation. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, the confirmation, right? It makes us strong pillars, standing up witnesses of the presence of God in His house. We're not stones out there, right, in a zoo or in a museum. We're stones in the house of God. So let me tell you something about the stone. And then in closing, because I think it will help you understand the meaning of this. And I'll say one more thing about the, the, the last verse. So bear with me five or five more minutes. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. An 8th century before Christ's Aramaic treaty inscription from Sphere in Syria terms each upright stone on which the treaty is inscribed as a testimony, which is uh, in Hebrew called matseva and the essentially a text that designates the abode of the gods, their presence, and it serves as a witness to the treaty. It is clear that Matzeva is a generic term for an upright stone, irrespective of its function. The key is that it, they were constantly used as a sign of a treaty between us and God. So, In the literal sense, Jacob takes that stone, pours oil over it as a silent witness to the vow between him and God. So when we are taken and oil is poured on our head, we're standing as what? A witness. A witness of Jesus' love for us. And what's a witness in Greek? Martyr. Same word. So that anointing that we receive with the oil is an anointing so that the presence of the Holy Spirit is in us and it gives us the constancy and the power to be able to live our faith all the way through and not to renege our faith when we are in danger. That's what we receive. That's the power of the anointing. And then, you know, in the last verse, Jacob said, And for all that thou givest me, I will give a tenth to thee which is the institution of tithing, and it goes back all the way uh, to these times. It's well attested in ancient Near East um, cultures. It's not only among the, the, um, the Jews. In this particular, particular instance, it's a one-time offering because God told him, I am with you. So he said, if God does these things for me, if he gives me bread and clothing, if he takes me and brings me back safely, I'll give him a tenth of everything I make. But notice this business of a tenth. And I told you last time, God told us, test me in this. Tithe and see what happens. Tithe and see what happens. And let's close with the words of St. John Chrysostom. Let us not pass idly by these words, dearly beloved. Instead, may we all imitate this good man, we in the age of grace, imitating this man who lived before the law. And let us ask the Lord for nothing of this world. After all, he does not wait for a reminder from us. Even if we don't ask, He grants us what we need. He makes the sun rise on evil people and good, and rains on just and unjust. Let us believe Him as He advises us in these words. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will come to you in addition. Do you see that He personally had, has made the former things ready for us, and promises to give us the later as a bonus? Accordingly, don't request as an initial favor what you are likely to receive as a bonus, thus reversing the due order. Instead, let us seek the former things as He directed, so that we may come to enjoy the former and the latter. God bless you. All right, questions? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the question is can we apply the latter to Our Lady? Yes. Uh, as I said, the uh, analogical sense applies to Our Lord. Anagogically, it applies to the Church and to Our Lady, obviously. Mary being the latter leads us to Christ, which is to say that this is the fastest, easiest, and safest route that leads us to Christ, and the angels around her are at her service and are there to do her bidding. So definitely, it is an image that applies to Christ. Yes. Yes, the incubation is this notion that you can go to a temple and there uh, make the God do your bidding, your will. It was. Yes. Yes. And it's important to mention it and indicate why it's different what we see here. Yeah, very good question. Question number one, how do you deal with people that talk in the church? And question number two, how do you deal with people who would like to come and embrace you or say hi? In the first case, if I don't know these people, I would take that as an occasion to practice patience and join with Jesus on the cross. Because if He's putting up with them, I better put up with them. All right? Um, essentially, it's not my role to tell them in the middle of the church how they ought to behave. And, uh, and it's, but it's my role to do the best I can to participate in the liturgy. So, for instance, in your case, as you're going through this frustration, as long as you were constantly trying to focus and trying to make an effort to focus, you had a great Mass. Because you made an offering to God. That's a Mass. Right? Mass isn't about what I get out of it Mass is about what I put into it. And you put into it that constant effort and the frustration and the difficulties you had with having someone in front of you talking all the time. So next time, include in that, all, offer all of this for her. That God may somehow show her what is going on. Yeah. Now, with people who would like to um, embrace you or say hi, all you have to do is very gently point out. Don't, don't talk. Just say, point out like this. And then when you're outside, obviously, speak with them and then say hello and everything. Hopefully with a low voice. Not yelling at the top of your... like most people do. You know, We think everybody is trying to compete to find out who's going to become Tarzan when they're out there. Um, so that's how you deal with it. But remember, you, essentially, if, if this person is offended... You're making a choice as to who you are going to offend. Because you have two people here. The Lord or that person. Make sense? Yes. Oh, sorry. So what the fathers are pointing to, I was quoting from them, is that in order to understand, to know the truth, you have to ascend to heaven. I mean, you have to raise your heart up to heaven and meditate on the truth. That's the movement of ascension. Right? By the way, faith is defined by St. Thomas, Aqu- Thomas Aquinas as faith is yielding to the ascent. That's what faith is. You just yield to the ascent. You don't do the ascent. God does it for you. But you give Him permission. He lifts you up in faith and you understand the truth of God. Now that you did that, you have to bring them down back to those who do not understand and share what you understood with them. That's what they're talking about, the ascension and the, ascending and descending. Any other question? Profanum means outside the temple. Okay? And so pro fanum, two words, outside the temple. And it means that you've basically brought something that is outside of the temple into the temple, or the other way around. You took something which is in the temple and you took it outside. And you're not supposed to do either. Hence, when we come into the church, we must be in a state of grace. Or at least not receive communion if we're not in a state of grace. And when we go out of the church, we take the graces with us and we share with others, but we protect them. So therefore, when we come in, into a sacred place, our focus must be on God not on each other. And we must maintain holy silence. Whenever we are not praying to God, or as is the case now, talking about Him, reflecting on Him, thinking about Him, we should maintain silence. All social activities, which are not part of the church, can wait until we are outside. Once you start doing that, it will form your conscience to a greater awareness of the holiness of God. But as long as you continue to do that, meaning treating this place as if it's a theater, you cannot advance in your faith. Because you learn with your body. It used to be that Protestants would be converted by the silence of Catholics in their churches. The silence during the elevation would convert people. Did I answer your question? No, as you can see from the images there are multiple meanings ascribed to them. In one case, good angels are going up, bad angels are coming down. So it's a notion of Jesus separating everyone through His cross. In another case, it is the preachers who are going up and coming back down. In a third case, it is angels who are ascending to God and, and to praise Him and coming back down to essentially govern the natural order. In a fourth instance... The angels who are at the service of the church and or Our Lady doing the same in the spiritual order. Multiple, it's, it's a very, it's a composite, very, very rich image that God gave Jacob. And there's so much we can gain from as we medit- meditate on it. Yes. yes. Absolutely, yes. I mean, angels carrying our prayers, that would be more in the moral order. When we are at the bottom of the ladder, we are down, we are laying We are asleep, meaning we are dead. And it's the angels who are carrying our prayers up to heaven. Because we cannot do it on our own. We're too weak. And it's still the angels coming back down to give us help so that we may wake up. So therefore the paralytic, right? You see the image of the paralytic who was brought to Jesus by his friends. Who could not go to him directly, but had to go up and bring him from the roof. Right? Ascending and descending, bringing him down, and on account of their faith, this man was healed. Right? There's a lot, again, I mean, there's, there's a lot in there. The question is is there a known area where the stone was? I don't know about the stone per se, but Bethel became a very important uh, part of uh, the uh, Jewish consciousness. Right? And it, was, it became a very important center, a religious center for them, even today, still. It's, it's a sacred site. Do we know where it is today? Um, don't know. I, did, I don't know if we do or we don't. I think we do, but I have not looked into it. Yes. Very good question. The question is, is it because we are here as in where the tabernacle is? We, we say it's the house of God, or is it because where two or three are, are assembled in my name? Uh, the really interesting thing about this business of the two or three assembled in my name is that it's been completely hijacked. Because when Jesus spoke these words, he was not speaking them to the lady. He was speaking them to the disciples, meaning the priests. It was the Mass, again. By extension, you can apply it to others, but it is not what people think it is. That when two or three are assembled, any two or three are assembled, then Jesus is substantially present as he is here. Not at all. right? It's an unfortunate thing uh, that uh, where Protestant theology penetrates Catholic teaching. I've heard it many, many times. Many, many times. Um, Back to your question. No, it is because this is where God is substantially present. That's why. This is the house of God. Physically, spiritually, it's everything. Yes. Very important question. What is the the significance of the exposition of the Holy Sacrament? Numerous, numerous. Uh, First, obviously on a spiritual order, if you recall, the tabernacle represents the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle represents the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was closed all year long. And no one could enter it. It was never actually, sorry, let me take it back. It was never open. Right? There was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple from the rest of the temple. And that was not a small, itzy, teeny-weeny little curtain. We're talking about a curtain that was 13 feet high by 70 feet wide. It was huge. It took 13 men to put it in place. And no one, it was never open. It was always closed. And only the high priest would enter behind that curtain on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement once, and he was tied by a rope, in case God smote him while he was there, they could pull him out with the rope, because they could not enter. So it's completely closed. Now imagine what happens when the tabernacle is open, and imagine what happens when God Almighty is present amongst us for our eyes to see Him, symbolically, but still we see Him. Right? It's the realization of how God is in our midst. God is present. He is amongst us. Right? It's a, it, and therefore, this is heaven on earth. Heaven is revealed. It is the apocalypse. It is the revelation, the presence, the unveiling of God amongst us. Right? The, the, the next aspect, obviously, is that we worship with our body. We worship with our body. We're not, we're not spirits. We're body. We have a body. And therefore, our eyes, focusing on the host, help us deepen this relationship with Jesus. In that sense, it is similar to, just similar though, not real. Uh, when you look, when you, so if, if, you're, if you're in travel and you're in the hotel and you're talking to your wife in your head, it's one thing. But if you take a picture and look at her, it's, it's strengthened that relationship, even though it's just a picture. Your eyes need that. Here you have that, but you have more than that. Um, ah. Haha. <laughs> Why not always leave the host exposed? Who could answer this question? Uh, the, hold on, let me answer this one. We are sinners. How can we be in his presence all the time? See, this is his mercy. Right? As long as we enter this church in a state of grace, right, we are in his friendship because he wills it. That answers your question. Otherwise, who can be saved? To man, it's impossible. But to God, nothing shall be impossible. It's the measure of His love that we can be His presence and we're not dead. Okay? Let me go back to my question though. Why isn't it always exposed? You're getting close, but it's something very simple and trivial that I'm, I'm you know, once you realize it, you'll, you'll, you'll see why. Yes? Not because of the mass. no. Pardon? It will get dry up. No. There are those considerations, but even without them, can't leave it alone. Okay. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because of judgment. Look, when you expose the host, look at how we behave in the church. you imagine how we would be if the host was exposed? We're just piling up judgment upon ourselves. So it's an act of mercy on the church's part that the church does not expose the host all the time. Now obviously... If you were to go to the Maronite monk of the adoration, where these monks are completely focused on this, even they don't expose it all the time. But there, it's always treated with reverence. with the right, I mean, the church architecturally structured the right way, and the right hands only touch the host. On and on it goes, right? That's why. This is heaven on earth. And we are made out of clay. I mean, this is stronger than any radioactive light you could ever imagine. Okay?
0: God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.